Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mumbrella listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. And I'm Hannah Blackiston. And joining us to break down the week in media and marketing is Damien Francis. Hello. And Brittany Rigby. Hello. Later in the Mumbrella Cast. I'll be talking to former ad man Todd Sampson about transitioning from agency boss to TV host. But I had always planned to get out and to retire from that life uh, in my 40s. That it was always my plan. What he won't miss about Adland. As you know, our industry is filled with some incredibly wonderful, smart, intelligent uh, people. It can also be a magnet for assholes. And choosing your battles. It's not a name I love. I'm not certain exactly where that name. I lost a battle somewhere along the line. But first, the week's topics. All change for the corporate spinners. Another telling off for Kyle Sanderlands. Domain's fake news scandal. And the winners and losers in the TV ratings. So, it's been a little while since the media watchdog had to tell off Kyle Sanderlands, but that changed this week, Brittany. Yeah, so no new comments from Kyle as far as we know. To be fair, I don't listen to Kyle and Jackie O. I'm sure that he makes some controversial comments most days, but this was about comments that he made about a year ago now um, concerning the Virgin Mary and the Bible and people of the Christian faith. So he made a number of pretty graphic and inappropriate comments about those topics, which led to 180 complaints to the Australian Communications and Media Authority. So they did their usual investigation, finally handed down uh, a report and found that he did breach rules relating to standards of decency but he didn't incite hatred and severe ridicule on the basis of religion. So another slap on the wrist. So it's worth explaining a couple of things. Uh, let me, uh, I'll ask both, both, both things at once. Firstly, why does it take basically a year until there's a ruling? And also, why only a slap on the wrist? Yeah, so I think in terms of how long it takes for them to hand down these rulings, firstly, there is a period over which consumers are allowed to put in their complaints. But I think if we boil it down, it probably just comes down to red tape. You know, everything has to go through the right process before it can come out the other end, um, which quite often means these scandals have well blown over by the time that the ruling comes down. As for why it's a slap on the wrist, don't know that I can answer that one. I think if there's anything ACMA can be accused of, it's of quite often handing out slaps on the wrists where maybe something a little bit harsher should be dealt. But I think in this case, um, Sanderlands and um, KISS were really quick on the offensive almost as soon as I think, especially because a lot of listeners of the radio station uh, lodged complaints about this one directly with the radio station. And I think because of that, they were pretty quick to get an apology out there. I seem to remember Kyle doing a very heartfelt apology the next day, um, saying that he was sorry for offending everybody. So I think probably that's helped them in this case. Look, Damien, I'll bring you in as well, because I, I wonder whether this is one of the flaws in the system as it stands, that the ACMA doesn't actually have a lot of powers in the sort of the middle area there there's various versions of you know people tend to use the phrase slap on the wrist right through to at the other end once they've put a license condition on a specific type of breach they can then potentially take away a license not that it's ever happened and not much in the middle do you think that's a flaw I think that could be seen as a, a, a pretty big flaw. Like you said, that, that bit in the middle is absolutely huge. But I think in this case, uh, I was very interested in, in the quotes that ARN came up with uh, after this all happened, which uh, spoke a lot about the context. And I think we all know that the context of Kyle Sandlin's and, and the radio show is that it can err on the side of what many could deem as offensive. Uh, but in this situation, some of uh, and I've got a, a bit of the quote here. Uh, 
the quote was, the use of the phrase dumbass, and I won't say the rest of that in the segment, may seem confronting to persons who are unaccustomed to Mr. Sandlin's frequent use of colloquialisms, but its impact is greatly diminished if contextualised against the regular use of colourful phrases often used by Mr. Sandlin's. Has the watchdog bought that? Do they understand that? Uh, Who knows what's going on there? Well, look, I'll bring you in in a moment, Britt. I I guess it's worth making a point around that is this sounds a bit like the press council who, when they were ruling about uh, the women's mags, uh, or more specifically the kind of the tabloid women's mags, almost made the argument, actually, you can have more leeway um, in findings against, you know, not sticking to the facts because no one expects it of you. Um, It it is a bit of a worry, isn't it, Britt, that effectively what, what, the ACMA seems to be saying is because it's Carl Sanderlands, it's what he does. To be fair, I think it was more ARN, which is the parent company of the KISS network, kind of mounting that argument. So what struck me is I dug, you know, deep into that report and what ARN's response was at the time that these complaints came through versus, you know, after the rulings being made. And those two responses are, are quite different. So You've got, as Damo read out that quote there, ARN also said that the audience has signed up for entertainment of that nature. And it was very much an Alan Jones style argument, I suppose, and that this is what listeners expect. This is what they're listening for. And, you know, what's wrong with that? But following the ruling, you know, it was very much ARN accepts the decision. ARN's, you know, very sorry. Kyle said sorry you know, this doesn't kind of align with ARN's views. We took a number of steps to remedy the action, which, you know, Hannah alluded to and is the reason why ACMA didn't take a harsher approach when handing down kind of any remedial action that it wanted. So it's interesting in the report in its entirety, the sort of tone that ARN took then, and it was very much that, you know, this is what fans and lovers of, of Kyle Sanderlands expect and want from him. I wonder what other thought that occurred to me was um again in the in the sort of uh, comments in I suppose defense or minimalization of the seriousness um was this quote ARN has not had any breaches of the decency provision in the past 10 years and regret any distress caused by the segment now one of the points to make on that is Kyle Sanderlands only joined in 2013, 2014. Um, he famously breached the decency rules when he was at Today FM to the extent that they did place a license condition. If he'd stayed at two, if he'd made these comments on Today FM, then this week we might have been talking about Today FM losing their license. Yet, but by the happy circumstance that you happen to find somebody who would pay him more money, nothing is now happening. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point because Sanderlands obviously has a really long and coloured history in offending people. Um, Obviously, there was that infamous comment from 2009, um, well, entire segment, in fact, which led to the licence threats. But then even since then, in 2011, Um, He said he would hunt down a female journalist for negative comments she made. Um, In 2013, there was that leaked recording from a Today FM Christmas party, uh, which kind of obviously not a problem for Kiss FM, but, you know, has kind of led to the tapestry of Sanderland's past. And then in 2018, he went after Ray Hadley. So I think (laughs) it's quite interesting, I think, that, KISS or the ARN are able to point to not having any breaches, but it also seems like a dangerous line to walk because surely the longer you keep Kyle on air, the closer you're getting to some sort of event happening, especially when he's got this sort of past of perhaps speaking before his brain catches up. Not to mention, I mean, the situation we're talking about back in 2009 where there was that licence condition handed down was the lie detector scandal He went off air for a little while after that. But basically, as soon as he came back on air, he was then suspended for saying that Magda Zabanski, whose family is of Polish origin, 
should go to a concentration camp to lose weight. So even when the penalties have been harsher, it's not like that's been much of a deterrent for him. I don't think Kyle really cares. So Hannah, um, it seems like a million years ago, but it was only probably a year ago, um, we went along to the um, uh, Commercial Radio Australia conference in, I think, Brisbane. And if I remember rightly, you and I were sitting in the front row as uh, Carl Stefanovic interviewed Kyle on stage. And I must admit, he won me over a little bit in terms of speaking from the hip, saying what he thinks, just, you know, I guess being honest with his audience and not having a filter. Not, And I, I, I think I came away convinced he doesn't actually deliberately set out to offend. It just so happens that that happens to be the consequence of where his stream of thought goes. Does he deserve to be cut a little bit of slack for that? Yeah, I think that's so interesting because I had completely forgotten this event because, as you said, it has been 80 million years since then. But you're right. We were sitting next to each other. And I think I did the exact same thing you did. I walked out of that room and was like, am I a Kyle fan now? Like on stage, to begin with, he's very charismatic. But on stage, he did deliver, I think, a very honest portrayal of who he is as a person and I think that's something you can't necessarily always say about media people especially people whose entire brand is being you know the opposite to what everybody else is I think quite often some people just do that just so they can get a good paying gig I think whether he deserves to be cut some slack for that I'm not sure but I do think that's why he has these rabid fans that's why people love listening to him so much is because he practices what he preaches if he's wrong about something he then comes on later and says oh yeah I was being an idiot my bad so I think I do wonder whether that means as talent he's actually worth the risk whereas you could perhaps say somebody like Alan Jones is not worth the risk because obviously, as Nine Radio made the decision to get rid of him this year, maybe because it wasn't paying off anymore. I think that's kind of the line you walk. But I wonder if in this case, no matter how many times he pushes really close to breaching those laws, it's worth it just because of how much his listeners really love him. Damien? I I remember a time, it must have been 2013, I think, when I was uh, at Ad News and I had the some would call it a pleasure, others wouldn't, of of interviewing Kyle with his uh, business partner, David Freeman, I believe his name is, uh, on their coconut water brand. Um, and I was all ready to go in there and absolutely, you know, tear him a new one and, and you know, be really uh, upfront with him. He was the nicest guy, one of the nicest guys that I've ever interviewed, super polite, uh, very interesting, on the verge of, of charming um and i walked away from that interview so confused about who the real kyle sandlins was and and how to deal with him moving moving forward that hearing you speak about that now it only leaves me to believe that internally uh at kiss he must be loved and revered and i'm sure he treats the employees quite well if this is any indication of how he treats other people on a one-to-one basis but you know it's that context again isn't it it's uh, are we getting used to this type of behavior and is he nice enough off air that we tend to to forget about it um it's a it's a very strange situation and uh to the point before that that tim made lucky that uh he's at kiss now next all change for the spinners Lots of movement in the world of corporate communications this week. The NRL and Seven West Media both said goodbye to their top spinners, while WPP hired a new one. Let's start with Seven, Hannah. Yeah, so uh, this news just broke today as we were recording, in fact. Uh, Julia Lafort, the former comms boss of Seven, has been let go. She'd only been in the role for a couple of months. Um, She replaced Steve Browning when he left. I believe his announcement was the end of last year, I think. Um, Again, 18 million years. 
Um, so Seven has decided to take a bit of a different tact with its comms. It's engaged an external agency, Shoebridge Knowles Media Group, and they'll be handling its comms and publicity going forward. I believe at this stage the rest of the comms and publicity team is still in place, although I think Seven already did around a redundancy through its publicity team earlier this year, so don't know how many people that actually is. Um it's kind of interesting because the release was skewed towards this is part of Seven's ongoing transformation. Obviously, um, SKMG have worked with some other big brands. They are currently working with 10, although I understand that relationship is about to end. Um, so I think I can remember when Julia started, and I don't remember if we had this conversation on the Mumbella cast or not, but I know I spoke with lots of people about hiring people who don't have a media background to do a media boss comms role. Um, and there was kind of, you know, arguments on both sides as to whether that was a good decision or a bad decision. I'm not sure whether this appointment maybe suggests that she didn't work the way they hoped she would or whether maybe this is just more in James's ongoing plan to transform Seven. But it'll be very interesting to see how much things do change under SKMG. Well, look, it's going to be very interesting as well because corporate comms with the TV networks has got quite a history in the past, maybe not quite so much in recent years, but in the past of being a full contact sport. You know, I've, uh, as it happens, I've just been rereading um, uh, Broadcast Wars by Michael Bodie, which kind of tells the uh, tells the story of sort of uh, the first decade of this century, which was very much the time of Simon Francis as the corporate cons person at seven and he really sets out just how aggressive seven used to be every single time there was any sort of blunder at nine then waiting in every single trade reporter's uh, inbox the next day would be a clip um and it was very much they'd go after each other and it was incredibly you know it was it was rough play but it worked because it drew this picture of you know not not necessarily even seven on the way up but just this you know nine on the ropes again and again and they've all probably played a bit nicer in recent years um so you know it's it, it's interesting and then i suppose the other point is um the fact that um you know the appointment it's it's james warburton going back to uh people he knows well so neil shoebridge was the person that he hired in to do the role during his let's say disastrous short tenure as as boss at channel 10 maybe it was his fault it was disastrous but probably it wasn't probably it was the circumstances but one of the criticisms of them was james went out to the outside world and brought in all of his and again i'm using it slightly not my word but the word itself, his mates and it seems a bit like he's gone for the familiar again and that he's gone back to shoebridge again um so i wonder do you do you think are you expecting that we'll see a a, a, a you know maybe seven playing a little bit rougher against uh against its, its its opposition against nine and ten again yeah it's worth um mentioning as well charlotte valente who is the cmo over there also part of that um you know she's worked with james before um so yes to the to yeah she worked over at apn outdoor when he was the boss at apn outdoor didn't she Yes, she did. So, uh, yeah, to the the naked eye, it does appear that he is indeed getting the band back together. But in terms of what we'll see from this going forward, um, I would say that Neil is perhaps from the old school of comms, especially, and especially in recent years, you know, 10, 9 and 7 have all laid down the swords. So I think it'll be interesting. I think, of course, what you have to wonder is, if one person starts playing hardball, will everybody else rush to keep up or will everybody else maintain the status quo? But yeah, it'll be an interesting next couple of months, especially as we move into upfronts. And of course, we're massively conflicted as well, because if they all do start leaking against each other like they used to, then um, then, then, then that would suit us just fine. <laughs> yeah, we're happy to work in whatever way they would like to work. <laughs> Well, uh, while we're talking about corporate comms people, uh, NRL said goodbye to Liz Deegan this week, Brett. They did. So her position was made redundant not even a year after she left News Corp. So she was at News Corp a very long time, 31 years, kind of hopped over to the NRL to take up this newly created position, 
obviously none of us predicted that, you know, a year later we'd be in the sort of economic and market climate that we are. But, yeah, leadership restructure at the NRL, which has meant her role has gone and also the chief operating officer role is gone. And it's probably worth um, just discussing a little bit, um, Damien, um, what the actual role of a corporate comms person is. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a, particularly in the NRL, it's such a varied role. Uh, there's government issues that they've got to deal with. There's internal communications as well that they've got to deal with. The obvious one is the media relations that they're that they're dealing with. But largely in the corporate sense, uh, it's a lot of the relationships that they're having with other businesses, with government, with broadcasters, and of course uh, with, with the media as well. But the NRL was such a an interesting uh, case this year in terms of there was so much going on after COVID hit. There was obviously the huge uh, battles with Nine about the rights as well. There were a lot of relationships that soured with the NRL. Of course, Todd Greenberg walked away uh, as well as CEO. Um, so it's not uh, hugely surprising that they could be looking at this at 2020 as a chance to reform and go a different way and, and change tack a bit. Uh, obviously, it's a shame that it uh, it hasn't played out uh, as uh, as she would have liked, and it's been a very quick uh, sort of decision in that sense, particularly when things are heating up for the NRL substantially uh, at the moment. Uh, but that role, particularly with the NRL, is such a key position. And then, Hannah, we've got Toby Hemming coming in as WPP AUNZ's first head of communications and marketing. Yeah, correct. So Toby Hemming is the founder of Bold Media, which closed last month, um, which was his own kind of PR and comms agency. Um, But he's come in now into this role in WPP, which um, has recently been created as part of that transformation that CEO Jens Monsies is bringing across. Um, It's quite interesting. Initially, when this announcement came through, we thought that perhaps it would be you know, perhaps a replacement of the existing comm structure across the business, but it's not. It's an addition to that. Um, so maybe so, explain what the current structure is. Yeah, so currently um, WPP as a holding group has its own comms people. Also, the agencies underneath it have their own comms people. So that's quite a large number of people who up until now have been, you know, just looking after the agency that they're sitting above or in the case of um, WPP's comms people, some of the smaller agencies as well, Toby's role will be sitting above all that. So they'll all now be reporting into Toby. Um, And that includes Group M, the media agencies as well. Yep, that includes Group M, that includes all the other agencies. So it's a massive role if you think about the size of WPP. And also if you think about, you know, working directly with Jens during what is quite a difficult and chaotic I would say time for WPP and for the industry Toby's obviously got a very long history in media um and another ex-news corp person another ex-news corp person and a big you know he's got a history of dealing with these agencies of dealing with external stakeholders and all that sort of thing so I have no doubt that he can take it on but it seems like an interesting time to be bringing a role like this in. And I think it kind of says a lot about what WPP wants to put forward into market. Yeah, it was a confusing announcement for me, I think, because the message from WPP this year was and continues to be cost saving. So, you know, they've pinned this 70 million number as the number that they need to hit this year. They're saying that that number is only going to grow next year. And while, you know, there's been the pay cuts which have now been restored and there's been a hiring freeze, which Jens has since said, you know, was not really an across-the-board hiring freeze, but they were always looking for for key appointments in strategic places and and Toby fits into that. It, It sends a strange message in that WPP does have such a layered comm system already there are a lot of people doing a lot of different things in that space. I'm very interested to see what Toby's role will look like in practice in terms of how closely he works with Jens, 
how strategic his role is and and more kind of long-term high-level stuff than perhaps some of the stuff that the other comms professionals there are already working on. But, you know, we had some mixed mixed bag comments on the piece as well because understandably, I suppose, you know, WPP staff and maybe other people in the market are also thinking, well, why wasn't someone already in a comms role there promoted to fill that role? And why is this role so necessary in this year of all years when we've all been kind of making sacrifices and taking a hit? So, look, Toby's obviously very experienced. Sounds like Jens is very keen to have him there. I would just be interested to see what it looks like in terms of the day-to-day. Damien, your thoughts? Surely this makes sense, though, doesn't it? Let's think about this. Uh, Jens has come in last year. He's been tasked with changing everything pretty much putting the ship right, he started to make those changes with the campus model, with some mergers, with a whole heap of changes that uh, he's either uh, executed on or he's flagged as happening. What do you need to accompany those changes? You need a really good comms model. You need a really good uh, person slash team in there to make sure that those uh, that those. Uh, acquisitions, those mergers, those changes in the business, whatever it happens to be, are communicated really well to staff, to clients, uh, to people in the industry, to us, of course, and and others. Um, so in that sense, and I know there was a lot of talk about, well, there was a hiring freeze, so what's happened here? And there are obviously others in the business who have uh, similar roles or uh, are of a senior nature within comms, but to me, you know, this makes sense that they take the opportunity now to really focus on that comms piece and see what they uh, can reshape in the next year to make sure that what they're putting out um, is actually communicated properly into the right people. And I guess Toby's been in this industry for, as you've said, for a, for a long time. It It's not a strange hire in my mind. Next. An embarrassing firing at Domain. The Mumbrella 360 Reconnected program is seriously heating up with some of the biggest industry names set to feature across four days in November. Secure your place now and hear the latest insights and wisdom from the likes of Microsoft, Junkie Media, The Iconic, Tourism Australia, We Communications, DDB Australia, SI Partners, PhD, Hard Hat, IAG, and many more. Tickets start from just $69. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash mumbrella360 for more info. This week saw one of the most serious cases of widespread journalistic fraud ever uncovered in Australia. Property website Domain, majority owned by Nine, fired a journalist after discovering that she'd fictionalised quotes in a string of articles. Hannah, what happened? So a junior lifestyle reporter at Domain uh, was uncovered to have, as you said, fictionalised quotes. Um, I believe it began with one story in which she uh, fictionalised quotes from a psychologist Then she was stood down at that point and Domain apologised. But following that, ABC's Media Watch got hold of a whole bunch of other articles and did some background research on it, which kind of exposed that a lot of the quotes she'd used in other stories were also either fabricated or lifted from other pieces. Um, And that in some cases she'd made up spokespeople. In other cases, she had attributed quotes that were not from them. Um, So, yeah, just a mishmash of different series of incorrect reporting. So Media Watch chose not to name the journalist, but that morning uh, before the Media Watch show, the Sydney Morning Herald did. I think everyone assumed it was a little bit of a spoiler from uh, parent company Nine, which, as I say, is an owner of Domain and the Sydney Morning Herald as well. Um, Do we think she should have been named, Brittany? I felt really uncomfortable about her being named, actually, and I was perhaps a little bit surprised at just how viscerally I felt that. I think it's one thing to hold people to account and to kind of hold truth to power and and all of the things like that. 
And I think if she was a more senior journalist whose name we all knew anyway, who had quite a prominent role, then it would be a very different story. But the issue here seems to be less of one reporter does some pretty dumb stuff repeatedly and doesn't get caught for a long time. And more, the fact she didn't get caught for a long time suggests that there's some pretty serious issues of a lack of oversight, a lack of sub-editing, a lack of fact-checking. I mean, it didn't feel super malicious to me because it just felt almost a little bit too stupid. Like to name someone real and to hope that they don't notice that their name is attached to quotes that they haven't actually given you as opposed to going along the route of, you know, a source who chose not to be named or someone who spoke on the condition of anonymity, it felt very kind of amateurish, which I guess points to she's very young, she was very junior. It felt really heavy-handed and a, a little bit too much to me to kind of attach her name to something when she then becomes the direct source of blame, I think, and I think that masks a little bit the fact that this is a bigger issue and that Nine and Domain have some responsibility to take as well. I suppose the question for me, though, is how junior is junior? Because it was not her first job. I think it's gone down now, but well, as soon as I saw her mention in the Sydney Morning Herald, I went onto her LinkedIn profile, and it was a second or third job. So it wasn't as if she was brand new to the industry. So I guess one question is, I know it was presented in the intro of the Sydney Morning Herald uh, story as junior reporter. I guess one question is, is that really a fair summary? Um, and I must admit, I... Hey, we haven't we haven't named her here now, and I haven't put her in the name in the script. But I must admit, if I was writing the story, I think I would. The only reason I've not put her name in the script now is because we haven't independently verified it. So we've we've seen it reported elsewhere, um, but haven't verified the name. So I think, as a principal, um, I think I'd also worry. I mean, firstly good on the Sydney Morning Herald because I think they'd have been accused of covering it up if they didn't when it's, you know, one of their own. And that is my other question for you, Hannah, is is one of the reasons why we're resisting it because it's a journalist, so it feels a bit closer to home for us. Yeah, Media Watch gave the, uh, said that they weren't going to name her out of concern for her welfare, which I kind of second. She was, as Brittany said, fairly young, and even if this wasn't her first job, it doesn't mean that she's ready to handle an industry pile on. I think I kind of took a pretty strong stand but, on But this. my point on that is lots and lots of people have really stressful things and bad things happen to them day in and day out in all sorts of industries that do get named. So why should journalists be special in being sort of protected like that? Yeah, and so... The reason I took a really strong stand on this one is because it hit very personally for me. I've been in these roles. I've worked at Nine. I've worked at Sky News. I've worked at News Corp. I've been in these positions where you have somebody standing over you expecting five articles a day and there are no excuses. You either turn in five articles a day or you leave and somebody else will. I think this to me just highlighted a far bigger problem we have in this industry, which I think if we're all pretty honest, we all know that we have in this industry, that there are some publications who make their money off churning out content that isn't checked, that is, isn't even peer reviewed. It's just put up by a journalist who is the only eyes that run across that story. To me, she was just the face of that problem. I agree with you that we are probably very biased in the coverage of this just because of that history that, you know, we all as reporters have, but also because of that kind of camaraderie that we all have. And perhaps if she was working in a different industry, I would feel differently. I do also wonder whether it would change my opinion if it wasn't just lifestyle reporting at Domain. You know, if she was working at the ABC or the Guardian or News Corp and she was fabricating facts from international correspondence or you know something life-changing I wonder if perhaps I would have a different opinion on this I wonder if maybe in my view lifestyle reporting is not necessarily hurting anybody and therefore it's fine um but yeah I just it just felt a bit icky to me to suddenly pile on a reporter when this was very clearly a sign if she's been getting away with this for at least what nine months at this point possibly the entire time she's worked there is there not a bigger issue that should be being looked at? 
look, Damien, um, you know, to the point we we're talking about earlier, maybe Hannah's got a good point. You know, the the tabloid magazine titles, you know, some of those over at places like Bauer, the journalists on those would be taught is absolutely fine to make up stories. So, um, you know, maybe, maybe we are talking about a culture and the lifestyle culture rather than um, the behaviour of individuals. Yeah, m- maybe we are. Look, I, Hannah and I and, and Britt as well had this debate on the day it happened uh, as well, uh, and I took your uh, opinion, Tim, in terms of if it was me writing, I, I would have named. I think at the end of the day when you look at it, we're all reporters. We're in the public uh, sphere anyway. Like We put our names to our articles. We've put our names here on the Mumbrella cast we're in videos, we're on stage. It's a very public role, even if it's B2B like us and in a small industry. At the end of the day as well, uh, you'd have to look at her background. You know, Was she working on, I don't know, new idea before or something like that? Is, the, is it a fair assumption to, to say that she was trained that way? At, at the end of the day, she worked for Domain. She didn't work for, for new idea and um, – there's a level of uh, reporting that is required to work for for domain. The other issue, as we've talked about, though, is why wasn't that level of reporting actually policed? Shock horror, all these redundancies, all these cutbacks in journalism end up in something like this. Surely we're not shocked by that. There's blame on both sides here. There was irresponsible action from the journalist's part and the media as well has to take responsibility for the cuts that it makes. This is what happens. It's funny, Damo, you've actually just made me think of a piece um, that we ran a couple of weeks ago um, when Bauer ran that incredibly terrible Richard Wilkins profile piece where I believe they got his name wrong, his son's name wrong, number of other people wrong, mislabeled um images all the rest and if i remember the person who or what took the most fire at that point was the subs there were so many comments being like this is what happens when you fire your entire sub department this is what happens when you overwork journalists and you expect them to be able to turn out pieces it's quite interesting i think that in that case because we're so aware of what bauer has been through and we're so aware of what the magazine industry has been through we were very quick to jump on the oh my god how could bauer let this happen train and yet in this case when domain isn't necessarily one of those um titles that you think of in relation to redundancies we're blaming a single journalist so i think that is quite an interesting juxtaposition there next the week in television It's all about reality TV in the ratings at the moment. Hannah, who are the week's winners and losers? It would be very hard for me to point to anyone as a loser other than Plate of Origin at the moment, unfortunately. Um, The most recent episode, which aired on Tuesday evening, drew just 382,000 viewers, which is so uncomfortably low for a primetime TV show. Good luck spinning that, Mr. Shoebridge. (laughs) Primetime again being that, you know, 7.30 evening slot. Um. It's quite interesting as well because I think Plate of Origin is maybe making everything else look like it's performing a little bit better than it would be performing otherwise. I mean, the block isn't exactly lighting the world on fire at the moment, but it's definitely doing better than Plate of Origin. Um, Its last couple of episodes have pulled around that 700, 600,000 Metro viewer mark. So what I just am so desperate to know if we're going to see Plate of Origin back again next year or if this is going to be a very quiet slip away into the night kind of event. If we look at some of the nights this week or across the last week, sorry, um, the ABC has been doing really well compared to the um, other primetime shows. Hard Quiz has been performing really well. Mad as Hell always does quite well. So it's interesting, I think, when you've got three big reality performers out there, The Block, Plate of Origin and Masked Singer on 10, and yet the ABC is still putting in a fairly good performance. And speaking of The Masked Singer, we are going to see a season finale. They actually did get to record it after their uh, COVID outbreak, Hannah. 
They did. Um, so I'm not sure whether this was meant to happen or not, but the last episode of The Masked Singer we got um, was like a bit of a clip show. I don't know if that was them buying time or if that was planned. Um, but, yes, we are now going to finally see a um, finale. It had it did get stopped midway through because a security guard phoned in a noise complaint, which I really enjoy. Um, just another fun time recording during covid um, this was one of the celebrity uh, um, judges back in New Zealand, wasn't it? She was in a hotel quarantine where they didn't didn't appreciate the noise. Yeah, so Ursula Carlson, who replaced Lindsay Lohan um, on the judging panel because Lindsay Lohan was unable to get to the country, um, she was recording alone in a in quarantine in a hotel in New Zealand, um, and yet it got phoned in as a noise complaint. Which Apparently, is screaming "Take it off! Take it off!" at two thirty <laughs> in the morning can go down badly. Yeah, we have long raised that there are some issues with that uh, chanting portion of the show. So honestly, it was only a matter of time before this happened. Um, but yeah, it does mean that next next week we should expect a final episode, which is great. Also because. Massinger really suffered this year, as it did last year, I suppose, by having most of the masks kind of revealed before the final event. I think if you give them too long with the, in between the last episode and the next episode of this show, we're all just going to know who's under the masks. And I think that will probably hurt them in the ratings. So 10 must be desperate to get this one out as quick as they can. Next, I'll be chatting to Todd Sampson. While Mumbrella's audience may still best know Todd Sampson as an ad man, over the last few years he's been carving out a fresh career as a television documentary maker. Tuesday sees the start of the fourth season of Body Hack. Todd will be driving in a demolition derby, learning about voodoo worship in Africa, and learning martial arts in Japan. He joins me now. Todd, welcome. And while, of course, you are still involved in Gruen, um, I guess it is time for us to start more accurately labeling you as a former admin, yes. I suppose. Well, this is, the, I think, I think, I'm sure I'll be corrected if it's not true, but I think it's the first time I've spoken to the industry media, although you extend beyond what would narrowly be defined as the industry media in five years or more. Yeah, look, that's, uh, that, that, that's true, because I guess your main connection now is through, uh, through Gruen, and maybe we'll touch on that later. But let's start with, um, let's start with Body Hack, which began back in uh, 2016, so about four years ago. Mm. How did that program come about? I was finishing up, I was maybe three quarters of the way through Redesign My Brain, and I realized that I wanted to continue making factual documentaries, adventure documentaries, and I started to think about a show. I originally, uh, I originally called the show Inside Out, where you would get to just explore extraordinary people and bring their stories and their uniqueness to the screen so we could learn from them. And I originally started that idea, as I said, as Inside Out, and then it became Body Hack. I'm not even certain. It's not a name I love. I'm not certain exactly where that name. I lost a battle somewhere along the line. I just didn't know I was in the battle when I lost it. But uh, yeah, and then that's became a six year journey. Well, look, and that's interesting, the point you make, actually, about the studying the people, because that, that was something I was sort of uh, thinking about when I was looking at the synopsis for, for the, the, the three episodes in this series, in that it, it feels far more the sense that you're, 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 you're talking to people and understanding them rather than simply doing stunts. Um, yes. do, you, do you feel that you're sort of uh, beginning to sort of share some common DNA with the likes of sort of Louis Theroux, that sort of territory? <laughs> Yeah, I'm not worthy uh, in the same conversations Louis threw. Uh, it's similar. I tried to carve out a unique space. So I, I tried to be more adventurous than Louis is, more physically adventurous than Louis is, take, take more physical risks. And uh, Louis, who is a legend, and I, I look up to a lot of his work. I think he's fantastic and he's done amazing things. Uh, he limits himself, rightly so, uh, to more of the mental side. So he, and he, acts as a journalist where my approach is to to literally jump into their shoes and walk a little bit regardless of how uncomfortable the shoes are uh, but of course it's they're both observational documentaries i'd like to think also that we bring a bit more factual 
uh, a bit more information to our shows where Louis, uh, Louis is like enough rope as an observational documentary. He, he looks at parts of society. Uh, often he just gives them the rope and lets them, you know, do what they will with it. Well, let's um, maybe sort of uh, talk a little bit about how you actually go about making the program. And, um, uh, and I'd be interested also to just get your sense of how you've gradually increased yourself more on the production side of it as well. Yes. Uh, well, it's not much different than, in, in many ways, it's not much different than creating advertising. I mean, well, if you think about Body Hack is 19 episodes. So that's like nine feature films that uh, length of, of TV. And it's, it's a very similar process creatively. So I'm involved obviously in the idea generation and then I do a lot of the writing and then I work with a broad team of people in different expertise in different areas. And then I work through the editing process. Uh, that's probably the process I, one of the parts of the process I love the most, the actual creation of the idea. But it's, where it differs from the advertising business is it's less assembly line. Uh, it's less hand to someone else. It's more, it's very collaborative. So you, the experts in the field, there's, there's no sort of blind or false walls of creativity. If you're involved in the project, you by its very nature, you're, you have creative value to add. So it's a very open and collaborative process in that regard. But when you're on the screen, you obviously have a different vested interest. Uh, and it's, it's, it's often quite, there's quite a lot of conflict in that process and how much you can show and you're working with a commercial network. So yeah, it's, it's very similar to the, to the creative process in advertising, but different in its collaboration. And presumably right at the start, you'll begin with a whiteboard with a long, long list of people that you could talk to or things you could investigate that, that eventually boil down to those, as you say, there've been 19 episodes now. Yeah, I carry a list in my pocket, well, on my phone, of cultures or societies or groups of people that I'm interested in. It's not just about them being unique. It's, it's about them offering something that we can learn from. Like if you look at Demolition Derby, they have an incredible ability to manage physical damage. Uh, and I'd never been in a car crash until that episode. And I'm still, it's been months and I'm still recovering from that episode. But they have an ability to manage their mind, manage their stress, manage their physiology under extreme pressure. Like, and that episode was in many ways quite traumatic as well because we, we filmed with uh, one of the drivers in the Bonneville Salt Flats and he crashed at 700 kilometers an hour. Uh, he still hasn't. Uh, he's been in a coma yeah, nearly the entire time. And it, again, it's this risk reward. It's this ego risk uh, balance. So yeah, that, so that's, each show has its own learnings. Each show has its own uniqueness, but we choose based on what we think will be relevant to a lot of people, similar to a brief, creatively. You know, relevance is so, so important. And presumably it must be quite an expensive show to make as well. Yeah, they're not, they're not cheap, but I, but I film with a very small crew. So I get asked this a lot, you know, how do you film? Documentaries do not get made without a whole bunch of brave eclectic talented people but in the field uh in the so this is the field team that team of people is is myself uh jeff sibri he's probably my he's a director and a shooter uh, he's probably my creative partner in all of this he's the person he and i together are rely on each other the most creatively uh in the creation of it the editing of it the shooting of it all of that and then there's uh an, two shooters and a sound up and then the fixer who makes everything happen on the ground, which is a local hire. And that's it. And that's it. And then, of course, there are editors and then there are some researchers and there's lots of other people involved. But, you know, I'd like to think we have a cost efficient uh, team. And I suppose the, the, the other thing I was interested in with, with the practicalities of making television during the time of COVID. I know that um, your first two um, seasons were six episodes. This one is just three. So I, I, I'm wondering, did, did you actually have to cut things short because of um, the pandemic? It's funny you say that because the first two seasons were six episodes. And then I decided that I didn't want to do six episodes. 
I didn't want to do six. I didn't want to do six in a row because if you imagine each episode, all filmed overseas, each episode takes three weeks to make. You can add those numbers up, and that's a lot of time away from the kids and family. So I didn't want to do six in a row again. At least take a break from that. So I went down to four because four was sort of manageable. And but uh, we were filming the fourth episode of this series in Rio de Janeiro. And we were in the uh, favelas. We were actually filming samba. I was going to join a samba school, which is part of helping helping uh, criminals and people that have not much opportunity in their lives that live in these favelas, which are like townships. It becomes a vehicle for them to get out or at least to enjoy life a bit more. So we were in a favela filming and COVID broke. And, and I'll never forget, I was filming with uh, an axe murderer. So his modus operandi is he carried around an axe uh, and he was known, you know, for this. And we were uh, filming different scenes with him. And at one stage I broke into his house because he couldn't get in, in the favela. I, I just the irony of me having to break into a, a former drug lord's house that carried an axe in the middle of a favela. And uh, that day we also found out that uh, the drug lords running that favela and all the other favelas believed we were too dangerous to allow in. And so we were pulled out of the favelas. Eventually, uh, the DFAT, the government in Australia, pulled us out of Rio. We took the literally the last flight out of Rio, commercial flight out of Rio. We flew the crew out. We landed. We all went into self-isolation. But the next day after we arrived, there was forced isolation. So that episode never got made. And do you think that's now lost? Is the moment gone for that one now? No, not necessarily. Uh, we're looking at some options with that one. Maybe they'll, you know, maybe they'll come a time where we could come round and make that again. I don't think it's lost. We have lots of footage, but our quality level is so high that we didn't have enough to do it the level of which we would want to do it because we had to leave early. But with a bit more time, and uh, yeah, we could we could easily make that an episode. So um, I guess these days, uh, I think the trendy term these days is portfolio career, uh, which yes. is, is, is what you enjoy. Uh, you were on the board of Fairfax, currently on the board of Qantas. And I, I, I know that you'd rather not talk about Qantas today, which is understandable because clearly you're not a spokesperson for them. You're on the board. Yes. You, you ran Leo Burnett, so you, you know your way around uh, P&L as well. Um, do you do you think you've got another big executive job in you one day, or is is that that part of your career behind you now? Do you think? The answer is I don't know. At this stage, it, I, if you asked me to do something right now, I would say no. Uh, I left. I I loved my time in the advertising business. It's stressful. It's it's uh, it's hard, but it's it's an incredible privilege to be working with such creative, eclectic young people on such diverse problems uh, across a wide range of businesses in an ever-changing industry. And I love that time, but I had always planned to get out and to retire from that life uh, in my forties. That was always my plan. And I, I worked to that plan and I was very open about that with everyone in terms of people replacing me and succession planning and all of that. And, but I was scared. I grew up in a family, a blue collar family where my dad worked in a factory and he woke up at 5.30 every day, worked all day, came home at night, ate food and went to bed. And he did that for 45 years. And I believe that's what I had to do. So the thought of not having a traditional job was super scary for me. And I bridged that with my board positions, but I ultimately stepped away from that world on my own terms. I, uh, and it took a lot. It took a lot for me to walk away. Uh, you know, you just, you just think you're not able to live a life that doesn't involve you working nine to five. That's how I felt. And surprisingly, I can live a different life. I've enjoyed now living this life, which has also come with its stress and fun and excitement and all of that. And you're right, maybe I'll close this chapter in a short period of time or a medium period of time and open another chapter. But at this stage, I love the chapter I'm in. Well, Wikipedia tells me that you were born in 1970, the same as me, which means you've either just had or just about to have your 50th birthday, which can be a bit of a milestone. Is it, is it making you think about what you do next? 
not really. You're right. I I, I turned uh, 50 like like you, and uh, no, I didn't see that at all as a milestone. I always saw birthdays as Mother's Day. So throughout my life, I always celebrated Mother's Day on my birthday because I didn't really do much. I cruised out on, on you know however I got out. I don't know. I can't remember because of childhood amnesia. But uh, I got out. But mom did all the work. So I always see it as uh, uh, Mother's Day. I don't see 50 as as long as I can stay relatively fit and heal up my injuries, I don't see the age thing as much of a concern now. 20 years from now, that'll be a different story. Well, Gruen was the show that made your household name, Gruen Transfer, as it, it started off being called. Um, what do you think, now that we can look back on more than a decade of Gruen, what do you think the show has done for how the public sees the world of advertising? <laughs> That's a... <laughs> I went through so many ups and downs with Gruen as to what it was really all about. At one stage, I thought Gruen was just enough rope for advertising people. You know, uh, highly, people just wanting to prove themselves on television, you know, stroke the ego, let them run. You know, just let them run on TV and see what they do. Uh, but that's, there, there may be a bit of that involved. But I think its popularity is that advertising is like electricity. It's all around us all the time. And for the first time, 11 years ago, we put a light on it and explained it. And that electricity or scaffolding of our lives is there for everyone. You know, as we often say, those that think they're above advertising are the most susceptible to it. And so, but that exists all around us. Now, sudden, suddenly someone shines a light on that. That's quite interesting. That's quite an interesting thing to look at. And I think that we just kept putting that light on over a long period of time. In addition, you have someone extraordinary like Will Anderson who makes it funny and who brings an edge to it that only Will Anderson can bring. Uh, in terms of the public's perception, you know, I'm not certain. Uh, what, I'm not certain what they're seeing. I'm not certain they like advertising more. Uh, I'm not certain they like us on that panel more as much as they like the idea of understanding something that surrounds them, understanding the water that they're in. Uh, I think the show got such huge criticism in the beginning from the industry. I think that's changed. I think that it gave the industry a voice. It gave the industry, it lifted the industry onto a, a, a higher sort of awareness level among the general public where people didn't really think about it. And I think in general, uh, Groon's choice, the choice they make in characters or in people that they put on, they make excellent choices. And I think that they put really good representatives on the show. They, as you know, our industry is filled with some incredibly wonderful, smart, intelligent uh, people. It can also be a magnet for assholes. They've chosen not to put the assholes on TV. Uh, I think that's a good choice. I listened to a podcast not long ago with uh, Will Anderson and uh, Russell Howcroft, and they were talking about the next season of, of Gruen potentially, and I guess most likely now being uh, being filmed without a live studio audi studio audience because of social distancing. Do you, assuming that's the case, when you when you get back into the, in, in, into filming, do you think it will change uh, the feel of the show or, or the feel of making the show? It will certainly change the feel of the show. I'm not certain it will change the feel of the show from an audience's perspective, but it will change it for us. Because for me, a lot of the making of that show, so we, just in terms of how that show is made, we go in on a Tuesday in the afternoon. We film often for two hours or so. Sometimes it goes more, sometimes it goes less uh, for a show that's 35 minutes or 38 minutes. And so, as you can imagine, if you do the maths there, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make the show. And I enjoy a lot of that because a lot of that is will. It's a lot of that is will doing improv. It's a lot of that is will just having a go. Uh, and so that will all be cut out. So I think the experience for us as, as panelists, it will change a bit. But, you know, one of the, the advice that John Casimir, who's one of the creators of the show, gave me 11 years ago is he, he said, just forget about the audience. Pretend you are a group of people sitting around a dinner table having a, a, an intelligent conversation about advertising. And so, so I think what the audience sees will be not much different, but what we experience will be different.
Now, another question I was going to ask, and I think you've, you've maybe even partly answered both parts, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, now that you don't work in advertising in the day-to-day anymore, what, what do you most miss and what do you least miss about it? I'm guessing it's the arseholes is the least, least bit. Uh, uh, you know, I, I miss a lot. I, I miss the, uh, as I said, I miss the extraordinary minds, the eclectic lives. The notion that you could be working on tampons in the morning, cars at midday and whatever, alcohol or cleaning products. And that, I think we take that for granted from an intellectual point of view. It's quite a stimulating environment because you are problem solving on multiple levels, on multiple brands, all at the same time. I, I, I miss leading. Uh, towards the end of my uh, career, it was really had nothing to do with advertising. I was in the business of trying to lead a company. I was trying to be a good leader and create a business that was strong and took care of its people. And you I mean, you know, I said it so many times, people, product, profit was my, my mantra, my focus. And that's all I cared about. Uh, people, product, profit in that order. That model doesn't work so much now with holding companies uh, with margins being squeezed, uh, incredibly high cost based in businesses that are uh, needing to extract money from their clients, you know, to pay for what they have. And a traditional sort of analog uh, model or, you know, analog dollars not equating to digital dimes, as they say. So uh, when I, I miss the leading, that I do miss, because that's something that I, I put so much energy and effort into uh, at that time. What I don't miss, I don't miss the fickle nature of a service industry. I don't miss how one day they could like you and the next day they could fire you. I mean, you know my history I, I, with Subaru at that stage. I ended up having to let a number of clients go because of the relationship over time. I don't like that. I don't like just because it's a service industry and they hold the money that the people, it rarely ever happened to me personally, but it always happened to the account manager who was crying in the, in the pod who, who was treated unfairly. So I don't miss that part. I don't miss the power imbalance and the, the idea that there are others that can fill those shoes. And, and in many ways, the lack of, of loyalty over a period of time. I don't miss that at all. Uh, I, I also don't miss the holding company structure. You know, I think that, I think that the cost structures are too big. I think that the, the, the need to extract margin out of the businesses is putting too much pressure. Uh, I think the older agencies, the bigger holding company agencies, uh, they're ironically, they're poorly branded. And the new, these new kind of agencies that win all your awards and that those agencies are still untested. So it puts a CMO in an awkward choice. And then of course you get an agency like Adam's agency that cleverly takes the stability and strength of a management consultancy company. And then Adam Ferrier you're talking yeah, about, I think yeah, about. Yeah, and then combines that with the newness of a creative agency. And suddenly you've taken away one of the barriers, which is if you're old, you don't get it. If you're new, you're unproven. So how do you overcome that barrier? Well, they laterally, I just hope they haven't given too much away in the equity, but I think it's clever. Well, um, back to, uh, to, to body hack. Sometimes, uh, a, a game that the umbrella editorial team plays, um, when, it, when a new show is airing is we all, uh, we all write down what ratings we think it's going to get for the first episode and furthest out has to make a round of tea and closest is the winner. So I wonder what your guess for Tuesday night is for oh, the, the no. Metro ratings for body hack. What do you, uh, yeah. what do you reckon you're going to do? A hundred. I have no idea. I have no idea. Just on the ratings, right? I have no, this show is not a rating show for Ted. They don't, they don't, they didn't commission body hack because they wanted to smash it. If you want to get high ratings, you cook it, you date it, or you build it. And even those struggle to get the ratings. Uh, I I think, as you know, I think it's a flawed measurement. I don't say it because I know I'm making a factual documentary that doesn't rate highly because they don't uh, and but there are other reasons to make content uh, and there are other reasons to support content being made Uh, i i think that content needs 
if you're going to measure, you need to not only measure nationally because a television, measuring it on television is a weird measurement because the majority of people that will view this show will be over the next five years and it'll be in, in the rising online streaming. It's where it lives and wherever it, wherever it lives, if it's CBS Access or if it's Netflix or if it's Stan or wherever that's going to be, that's where it really lives. So I judge a show by its ability to stand up for 10 years. And if you look at, if you look at Redesign My Brain, that show is still being run on Discovery Channel in America. Like it still gets its run, you know, and that's, uh, that's not quite 10 years, but it's getting close. If you look at Groon, Groon is 11 year run. I, I think looking at Five City, whatever it's called, I don't even know what it's called, is- um, Five City Metro. Yeah, where do you even find those numbers? Someone tells you that, right? Or is it on, <laughs> do you have it on your website? Do you have- Ah, uh, look, they, they, they all come in by email of a morning and, uh, yeah. and, and yes, very shortly followed by the, 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 the press releases from the various PR people for each other. I'll pick a hundred people will show up and watch the show. Well, certainly set the uh, set an attainable bar. So the yeah. new series of Body Hack it starts on Tuesday at seven thirty on ten. Todd, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. Is audio part of your strategy? Get detailed insights from the industry's brightest minds at Mumbrella Audio Land. More and more brands are tapping into the power of audio to connect with their audiences, build new ones, and ensure their messages are heard. This conference is the one-stop shop for all things audio-related. Lock in your tickets for Audioland for October the 13th to hear the latest insights and wisdom from the likes of Eardrum, Mamma Mia, Southern Cross Osterio, Group M, Veritonic, and there's more to be confirmed soon. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash Audioland for more information. That's it for this week, though. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Toodle pip.